We'll come to a time now, we're going to look at a passage from God's Word. We're continuing in this psalm series, and today we are looking at Psalm 42, and 43 actually. So if you have a Bible with you, if you would turn to Psalm 42, if you're using a Brown Pew Bible, it's on page 401. And when you found that, would you stand with me, and I will read this for us. Most commentators uh, agree that Psalm 42 and 43 are actually one psalm. Nobody can understand why or when they were ever separated, but they really do go together. And so we're going to read both of them together as one, and I think you'll see why as we get to it. But we'll read Psalm 42 and 43 all together as one. So beginning at verse 1, this is what the sons of Korah write. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God. For the living God, when can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God, with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. For I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you. From the heights, uh, from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazar, deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me. The prayer to God, to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Vindicate me, O God. Plead my cause against an ungodly nation. Rescue me from deceitful and wicked men. You are my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Send forth your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God. To God, my joy and my delight, I will praise you with the harp. O God, my God, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. That's God's word. You may be seated. Let me quickly just pray for us once more and ask God's blessing now on this time as we come to his word. Spirit of God, as we come to this really kind of heavy passage today, um, but yet so real and so raw and so true to so many of our experience, we're just asking for a real, true sense of your presence with us this morning as we come to your word. Uh, I'm just asking you to speak powerfully to our hearts just as we need to be. Uh, uh, you, you see into each heart, you see into each life, and you know exactly where we need to be ministered to today. But I'm praying that the work that you ha have accomplished in me this week by your spirit as I've studied this, I pray that you would transfer that now into each person here as I bring this message. God, uh, 
but use this powerfully in our lives and in the life of this church today. You say that when you send out your word, it doesn't return void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. Oh, God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today. And as I always ask, eternal God, move and govern my tongue now to speak your truth. Amen. Well, those of you who have uh, kids of your own will very likely remember and acknowledge the uh, incredible challenge of something like sleep training. Sleep training for your children. This is where you're trying to help your child. Maybe it's learn to sleep through the night. Maybe you're trying to teach them how to learn to fall asleep without having to be rocked. Whatever it is, all these kinds of things, on and on and on. If there was ever a, a stamina testing, endurance testing trial, like on the level of like Navy SEAL sleep deprivation training for a parent, this would be it. This is it. Um, I, I pray for all parents with young children. God bless them. Um, and yet... For all the difficulty and struggle of it, one of the things that helps make the whole process at least a little bit more uh, bearable is when you can look at the struggle from the perspective of the child, when you can understand what it is that they're going through, when you can remember that after you fed, changed, uh, uh, swaddled, uh, uh, burped, done all these things, and finally swaddled them up, put them in the crib, that when you walk out that door and close it to them, you completely abandon them now. You are bags packed in the taxi, leaving on a jet plane, gone forever, as far as they can see, because you're outside the door. They're, you're gone now. You are completely gone, and, and as a result, what do they do? They just, they lose it, right? They start screaming, crying, wailing, shaking the crib. I remember my girls used to like take everything that wasn't like attached and throw it out of the crib, just angry. Where are you? Just desperate for our presence again, not realizing that the entire time we're literally steps away, just outside the door, ready to come and rescue at any moment of true need, and heartbroken at the thought and at the cost necessary in order to lovingly raise them well. Well, we're continuing in our teaching series this morning through the book of Psalms entitled Every Last Key. And I want to talk with you about an experience of perceived abandonment and sorrow, very much like that described in our passage today, and which I think everyone here to some degree can probably relate to to one degree or another. We've been talking each week about the incredible truth revealed to us in the Psalms that the God who made us and formed us also wants to speak new life into every last part of us, not just the parts of us that we believe are presentable, everything. And what I want to show you from our passage this morning is that God also wants us to bring him our sorrow. He wants us to bring him our sorrow. I want to acknowledge right from the very beginning that something, a subject like sorrow, uh, sadness, mourning, depression, this is vast and complex. There's like about 10 different sermons I could have written uh, for today. This is the one the Spirit led me to today. So it's not going to be comprehensive, but we're going to hit it from... Uh, what we have today, and who knows if we'll hit it again differently. But this idea that God wants us to bring him our sorrow, which might at first appear to be a relatively easy thing to do. So of course, yeah, let's bring God our sorrow. But for reasons that we're going to get into this morning, it's something we still regularly fail to do. Looking to everything but God to find relief when we're feeling sorrow. 
And while there are any number of reasons for why we fail to do this, I think what they all ultimately come down to is a misunderstanding, really, a misunderstanding of the nature and the character of God. I think that's one of the main hindrances for why we don't do this. So for some of us, we, we fail to bring our sorrow to God because we've bought into some version of a prosperity gospel kind of thing. We, we believe uh, that it says, you know what, following Jesus, that means wealth, success, healing, happiness. That's what following God means. And so if I'm sorrowful, if I'm suffering, if I'm downcast in soul, then God, uh, he must be mad at me. He must be punishing me for something. Or you just don't have enough faith. If you had more faith, you could experience the blessings that God has for you and not be suffering like this. Many people suffer under this kind of a lie of a prosperity gospel understanding. For others, we fail to bring God our sores because we live in a Western culture that champions authenticity, but is incredibly afraid of and, and disturbed and uncomfortable with suffering. We don't really like to look at it. And so because of that, we assume that like the culture all around us, our sorrow is unpresentable to God. That, that it's uh, uh, even shameful. He's embarrassed by it. Maybe it's even like, like a, a, a bad publicity for him. And so what God really wants you to do is to just go off on private, figure out whatever it is that's making you sorrowful, work it out, and come back when your tears are dried and you fixed your makeup. And I wonder... Because I, I just see this again and again, and I know I've suffered under the same feelings myself. I've got to hide my sorrow. I can't show people. I can't bring this out. I can't bring this stuff to God. Because of that, I wonder how many people even here this morning, right now, in this moment, are suffering under the crushing weight of grief, uh, a debilitating depression at this very moment, so much so that it took all the strength you have just to get out of bed this morning and come here. But nobody knows it. No one would be able to tell because you look so put together. You all look great this morning. Nobody knows it. Because you believe that the social stigma around something like depression or really any mental illness that's present in our world is also present in God and in his church. And so we need to hide it. We can't bring it. But here's a question for you. What do you do when you can't hide it anymore? And it's just too much. You can't keep it down anymore. Author Zach Eswine writes in his book, Spurgeon's Sorrows, which beautifully investigates the life uh, of the famous preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who suffered with deep depression himself. He says this, Sometimes there comes a time in most of our lives where we no longer have the strength to lift ourselves out or to pretend ourselves strong anymore. So what do you do? Where, where do you bring your sorrow when all of your strength, when of all your resources to handle it on your own are spent? What we're going to see in our passage this morning is that long before we even get near the end of our resources, God wants us to bring our sorrows to him. He wants us to bring them to him, to understand that he's not embarrassed by your tears, He's not ashamed of your sorrow. And to learn that just like that frightened child in the crib, although you may at times feel his absence in your sorrow, the reality of his presence never changes. And he is never either out of reach or ability to rescue you. 
right there. And in order to help you see that, and I pray truly take hold of this truth in your lives, I want to look at this passage today in just three ways. I want to show you the description of sorrow, the realization in sorrow, and then finally, our hope in sorrow. The description of sorrow, the realization of sorrow, and finally, our hope in sorrow. So if you've closed your Bibles, would you open them again to that passage and beginning at Psalm 42 and follow along with me as we learn about how God wants us to bring him our sorrow. Okay, so let's look first of all at the description of sorrow. The description of sorrow. Now, as you read through this Psalm 42, 43, what you likely notice is that there's a repeated refrain, right? Three times he repeats this refrain where the psalmist asks himself, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Now, there's an extremely important principle demonstrated there about one of the best ways that actually to deal with sorrow, generally speaking, that uh, famous uh, Welsh preacher and physician, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, talked about in his book, Spiritual Depression, about talking to yourself. That's really what we see the psalmist doing. He's talking to himself. He's speaking true things to himself instead of just listening to all the sorrowful thoughts that his heart has. He's talking to himself, and, and, and Lloyd-Jones would say that's one of the ways that we overcome sorrow. We overcome sadness in our lives by, by talking to ourselves and not just listening to ourselves. But as it relates to the sorrow itself, what you need to know is the actual meaning of that word, downcast. Downcast. That's not a word we generally use in our modern-day uh, speech. Uh, most of us, we, we think of someone being downcast. We think of maybe like a teenager who can't connect to the Wi-Fi at Starbucks. and just like, oh, can't get on. That's not, what, that's not at all what, what, what the Hebrew means. It's actually a much more potent meaning, actually. It has the idea, listen, of being dissolved, melted away, collapsing in on itself. That's the description the psalmist actually is meaning to give us here when he says, this is how I'm feeling right now. I'm feeling like I'm melting away. But I think knowing that then helps us to understand the sorrow and depression being described there. First of all, in verse 1, look with me. With this relatively well-known verse, from the Psalms that people like to put on T-shirts and coffee mugs with a picture of a deer drinking by the stream. Um, which is funny because it kind of ignores the fact that the point here is the deer isn't drinking, actually. He's dying of thirst because he can't find water. So I'm not sure where that picture comes from, but it's everywhere. Just Google as the deer <laughs> and, and look up images and every single one will be a deer drinking. I don't get it. Um... The point the psalmist is trying to make, actually, is that while he knows and believes that he would find comfort, he would find relief and, and help from God in the midst of his suffering, he can't find God anywhere. God seems nowhere to be found right now in the midst of his struggle. And so he's desperately longing for the, the felt presence of God with the same passion and thirst of a deer who longs to find water in a drought. That's how passionately he's longing for the presence of God to come and bring him relief right now. Then look at verse 3. Not only is, is he experiencing this deep thirst, he's not eating. He's weeping constantly. And then, just to add insult to injury, he's also mocked. He's taunted day and night in the midst of his suffering by people who look at 
his situation, to look at his circumstances and equate it with the powerlessness and the worthlessness of his God. They see this person who said, yeah, I follow God, and they see him suffering under this depression, and they're like, wow, really? Boy, it sure looks awesome to follow your God. Where, where do I sign up to be on that team? Looks amazing. Looks like he's real powerful. Like just crushing, taunting in the midst of what he's already experiencing. These are like desperate circumstances the psalmist finds himself in. And this powerful imagery is meant to convey just the depth of that soul. But it also, as you see, it also conveys the depth of his remaining hope in God. But before we go any further, I think it's important to stop and note that throughout this psalm, maybe you already noticed, the writer doesn't actually come out and tell us what it was initially that caused him sorrow. Did you notice that? The point of these combined psalms seems to be the psalmist's feelings of despair and abandonment at the felt presence of God in the midst of his sorrow. I am sorrowful, and, and I am also not feeling your presence here. Why aren't you helping me in this? Why, why, why can't I find you as I'm suffering? Of course, then on top of that, he's also experiencing this taunting. But what's helpful about that is because he doesn't give any specific cause, it actually makes it quite broadly applicational for us today because we're not dealing with one specific cause of sorrow. We don't know what it is that's causing him to be sorrowful. And so it makes it much more broadly applicational to us, however it is that you have felt sorrow, do, or will feel sorrow. But on the one hand, these just these first five verses uh, at this first section, the first kind of uh, section before his first refrain of why are you downcast my soul, I think what we see first of all is someone with a thirst and a longing for God that puts most of ours to shame, doesn't it? I thirst for God, I hunger for his presence the same way a, a, a deer dying of thirst hungers for water. Do you, do you thirst for God like that? I'm not going to answer for you, but I know when I look at my own life, although I want it to be so much more. Man, I, I look at that and I'm just like, I don't, I don't thirst for God like that all the time. I don't. I want it to be so much more, but I don't. And yet, uh, and I'm not trying to get ahead of myself, but I think the reality is that many times, I think one of, the, one of God's purposes in these seasons of his felt absence is to help grow that thirst, to help stir that desire even deeper within us. But on the other hand, I think some of the incredible encouragements that we also have here already from this psalm are, first of all, we see it's not weird, it's not strange for a follower of God to experience de despair and depression. Nor is it weird to experience the felt absence of God in our lives. That's not something strange that, that if that's happening to you, if you're experiencing that, we've got an example right here that says, no, no, this, this happens. It, it's normal. It, it does feel that way sometimes. And if you know your Bible well, you know there's, there's actually lots of examples of this throughout the Bible. People suffered deeply. They, they felt the absence of God's presence. Second thing it shows us is we can bring these feelings of our despair and depression and sorrow to God. Because that's what we see demonstrated throughout this psalm. Regularly, the, he, he's praying these sorrows to God. My soul pants for you, O oh God. All these things, he's directing it. To God. He's not just like sitting in his puddle of sorrow. He's lifting it up to God and he's saying, help me. Come. Would you, I, I'm bringing these things to you. Help me. So I don't know, actually. I don't, I don't know how it is that you've suffered in the past. Maybe how it is that you are presently 
suffering today or how you will suffer in the future. As we said at the beginning, it's a complex thing. There's all kinds of different things that bring about these feelings of sorrow. Sometimes it's circumstances that you're presently going through that just feel like devastatingly crushing and I can't go on. Sometimes it's something that happened long in your past that just continues to weigh on you and continues to cause you to feel sad and depressed and sorrowful. It can be a, a, a clinical depression, a, a chemical imbalance in your brain that there's, there's no circumstance wrong and yet you just you still feel as though the world is caving in on you. All kinds of different reasons for it. And again, we don't know why it is the psalmist was suffering sorrow and depression here, but here's the good news. Even if Psalm 42 and 43 was all we had of the Bible to go on, what you'd still have is biblical evidence of someone with a passionate thirst and pursuit of God that, that exceeds all of ours who is still experiencing de despair, depression, the felt absence of God. That just immediately exposes the lie of prosperity gospel for what it is, doesn't it? Because suffering, feeling sorrowful, feeling abandoned by God does not have to mean God is punishing you. Nor does it mean you just don't have enough faith and you need to buck up, start trusting God more. It doesn't have to mean that at all. And what you'd also have is a biblical example of someone bringing their sorrows directly to God with the confident hope that he will be heard and eventually answer. You see that all through this psalm. He believes, I know you're going to come. I don't feel it right now, but I believe you're still there and I, and I will find you. I will come and worship again. Okay, so that's the description of sorrow. The next thing I want to look at from these next verses is the realization in sorrow. The realization in sorrow. If you look at the beginning of verse 6, you see the psalmist continuing with this description of his sorrow with that same word, downcast. Look down to verses 9 and 10. He becomes even more descriptive now about the, the mocking torment he experiences as well as his feeling uh, of abandonment by God. But if you look back at verse 6, he writes, My soul is downcast within me, but then goes on to add, Therefore, I will remember. My soul is downcast. I feel crushed and melted away. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of Jordan, the heights of Hermon, which uh, is the, the farthest northernmost border of Israel. So the farthest part away from Jerusalem and from the temple that he could be. What does that mean? Well, look at verse uh, 7 and 8 of Psalm 42. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. Now, is anybody else confused right now? What, what do we make of this? How do we understand what in the world is going on here? Because this, how can the psalmist speak of God directing his love towards him, his song with him? And then in the very next verse, say to God, my rock, I say, why have you forgotten me? Like, which is it? Is he with you? Is he not? What, 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 what are we getting at here? Well, I think the key is found in both those words from verse 6 about an intentional remembering of God. And then, if you notice in verse 7, the attributing of the roar of the waterfalls, the waves and the breakers sweeping over him to God. Do you see that? He attributes them to God. He says, the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers, God, have swept over me. So what? Is the psalmist saying, bring your sorrows to God so that you can blame him? You could say, 
Look at what you did. Is that, is that what we're being taught here? No? No, I don't think so. And the reason for that is because of something pastor and author Tim Keller pointed out in his own work on these psalms. Namely, while you absolutely see the psalmist here, he's sorrowing, he's bringing his complaint to God. But if you look closely, what you don't see him bringing is confession. He's not confessing any wrongdoing here in the midst of his complaint. And what Keller goes on to point out is that in other psalms like this, where the writer complains of oppression and sorrow and mourning, they do it in the context of confessing some sin, a personal sin, a national sin, and then they cry out to God for mercy in response to their repentance. Free us from this, God. We're sorry we did this. Please free us from this. And yet, so these are referred to as penitential psalms, and yet what here in Psalm 42 and 43, you don't see confession at all, but simply supplication. That is a, a, a humble, earnest plea to God for something. So this is a psalm of supplication. I'm, I'm, I'm not confessing any wrongdoing. I'm just in the midst of these crushing circumstances, and I don't understand that I'm coming to you. I'm desperately crying out to you for help. And confining ourselves for the moment to the Old Testament. What other prominent figure do you know from the Bible who experienced sorrow and feeling abandoned by God for no fault of his own? Job. Job is our example of this. And if you know the story of Job, what you'll remember is that while God does not cause the circumstances that bring about Job's uh, suffering, his loss, he absolutely maintains sovereign control over every test, every threat, every affliction that he permits Satan to carry out in order to both prove the genuineness of Job's faith as well as to bring glory to himself. So what that means as it relates to Psalm 42 and 43 is that in pausing his complaint, in pausing his supplication for a moment long enough to remember God's sovereign hand and control over all things, the psalmist can then bring, he can look at the circumstances causing him to feel sorrowful in this present time and attribute not blame, but God's sovereign control over every single one of them. He can look at the circumstances crushing him right now and attribute not blame, but say, God, I know you're in control of this. You haven't, you haven't lost control in this situation. Which maybe at first that doesn't sound all that comforting. Um, it doesn't maybe if, if you're thinking of your own circumstances of, of sorrow and depression or whatever it is that you presently have right now, you might, you might think, okay, well, if, if that's true, if God's in sovereign control, you reason, then why isn't he rescuing me? If he could rescue me, why, why isn't he? That doesn't comfort me at all. Well, don't you see, if God is in sovereign control over those circumstances, and he has in his divine wisdom chosen not to remove them from my life, then while this understanding of sovereign control may, may not provide answers, or not even deliverance from my sorrow, at the very least, it provides it and supplies it with purpose. When I understand God's sovereign control and I understand that he has chosen not to deliver me, it doesn't tell me why, it doesn't deliver me, but it does give purpose. There is a purpose he's accomplishing through these things, which, listen, even from a secular perspective, is a game changer when it comes to the experience of sorrow and suffering. You see it almost everywhere. Anywhere you look for a story of sacrifice, heroism, character formation, historical or not, 
you'll see suffering becoming completely redefined in a narrative when it seemed to be accomplishing a greater purpose. I don't know how many of you have seen Avengers Endgame. I mean, that's just one example. I know we're not supposed to spoil Endgame, so I'm not going to spoil it, but suffering, difficulty, when, when it's achieving a purpose, we all see as like, oh, no, that's, I know it's hard, but that's good. It's necessary. It's accomplishing some greater purpose. It totally changes it from something you've got to get away from to something you see as accomplishing something, and so it makes it suddenly different. And for the man or woman thirsting after God who understands that not only does God have sovereign control over all these things, but that he's also good, how much more should that be the case for us? How much more? Because unlike the psalmist, we can go to the New Testament. We can go to that story. And without denying for a moment the pain and the sorrow that we're presently experiencing, we can say along with the Apostle Paul, I consider that our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in them. We can say with the author of Hebrews, no, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Or with James, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete not lacking anything. Why? Well, because we follow a Savior who truly suffered unjustly for the purpose of accomplishing our redemption. He suffered both on the cross as well as in the, regard, in, in the garden. Remember, he said to his uh, disciples, pray with me, sit and pray with me because my soul, quote, is very sorrowful even unto death. And if God was accomplishing a greater purpose in the life of his perfectly innocent son through sorrow, then maybe, just maybe, even if I don't understand what it is, maybe he's accomplishing a greater purpose in mine too. We can never, we can never give in to the, the lie that says, hey, follow Jesus and life's going to work out perfectly. Just give your life to Jesus and you're not going to suffer anymore. You're not going to experience hardships. That's, that's just not the case. It's not true and you will be crushed by it. As Spurgeon himself once wrote, Jesus does not suffer to exclude you from suffering. He bears the cross, not that you may escape it, but that you may endure it. Christ exempts you from sin's penalty, but not from sorrow. We need to know that. We need to know that or we'll be confused and we'll feel abandoned when we haven't been. Okay, quickly. We've talked about the description of sorrow the realization in sorrow. The last thing I want to look at together with you is our hope in sorrow. Our hope in sorrow. And what I want you to see here as we look to finally to this last section that's listed as Psalm 43 is the confident hope with which the, the psalmist can continue to press forward even despite the fact that nothing about his circumstances have changed. If you look at verse 2 of Psalm 43, you see the very same feelings of mourning, uh, oppression, rejection, he still feels all that. Nothing has changed presently about his circumstances. And yet, look at how he begins in verse 1. Vindicate me, O God. Plead my cause against an ungodly nation. Rescue me from deceitful and wicked men. What's he getting at there? Vindicate, pl plead his cause against whom? 
Well, isn't it against those who say to him all day long, where is your God? How many of you know that those voices don't just come from outside? <laughs> How many of you know that your own soul can say to you, where is my God? And you have to fight against the voice inside yourself. He's fighting against foes outside and in. Where is your God? And he says, vindicate me. Show yourself to be true. Show what's actually true that you haven't left me. Vindicate me. Rescue me. You know what he's saying? He's saying, God, as I bring my sorrows and submit myself to your sovereign control and purpose in them, show those who see my present suffering and take it as a sign of your indifference or your impotence just how wrong they truly are. You know, he's almost saying, you know, I don't even care if you show me what the purpose is. But vindicate yourself and vindicate me by showing the truth that you haven't abandoned me. You haven't left. You, you are here with me. You have not truly forgotten me. And my steadfast hope in you is not in vain. Look down at verse 3 of Psalm 43. He, he brings these two specific requests to God in whom his hope remains despite his remaining sorrow. Look with me there. He says, send forth your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Your light and your truth, which I find to be incredibly insightful things for him to ask for, particularly in this discussion of sorrow and depression. Because if you've ever suffered under a season of depression yourself, or maybe even a lifetime suffering of depression, or you know someone close to you who has, whether that's circumstantial, whether that's chemical or clinical or whatever it is, some of the most common descriptions that we have in those moments or that we hear people talk of is what? Blackness. Uh, a dark cloud. A thick, heavy fog that obscures my sight. As well as lying, despairing, cynical, incessant voices that keep me enslaved there. In such a state, can you imagine any better remedy that you could have asked for than light and truth that come from God? Light to illumine his steps in that darkness. And truth to guide the thoughts of his downcast soul back to what's real, back to reality. As you think about what this could look like in your life, or in the midst of your own sorrow today, I think another thing that can still hinder us and hold us back from bringing our sorrows to God and trusting him with those things is because there's also a misunderstanding of what the, the Bible means by hope. Look again, you see it. He repeats that refrain for the third time. Put your hope in God. You see, he says that two times. Put your hope in God, soul. Trust in him. Put your hope in him. And yet for the modern reader, so often, I don't know why it is, we look at that word hope, and without even thinking about it, a lot of times, we substitute the word wish. Why? Because that's how we use that word today. I hope it doesn't rain on Sunday when we wanted to do the picnic. I hope I don't have to sit on the bus beside that guy again. Hope the Canucks can actually make the playoffs this year. Whatever it is, what we mean is, I really, really wish that would happen, right? That's what we mean by the word hope. But the Bible uses the word hope very, very differently. When the Bible speaks about hope, it's never talking about a wishful thinking. In every case, what the Bible means by hope is a confident expectation. Put your confident expectation, place your trust 
in God's soul. And no, it's not everything, but maybe, just maybe, the reason you keep trying to deal with sorrow on your own in private instead of bringing it to God and trusting him isn't just because you've misjudged his character, but also because your faith in him is still too much wishful thinking and not enough confident expectation. Really believing you, you are with me. You will deliver. And what I mean by that is that your expectation of God every time is deliverance from sorrow and not light and truth to guide you through it. That you would just say, I'm only going to bring my sword to God if he's going to fix it. If he's not going to fix it, then I'll go somewhere else. And so we withhold it from him. And I believe that's because we don't come with confident expectation. We come with wishful thinking. I, I hope God can do something. We come with confident expectation. And here's the thing. Sometimes when you do that, he will deliver you. Sometimes he does. And it's beautiful and it's incredible. And I've experienced it myself in some of my moments of deep sorrow to pray to God, to cry out to him, and felt the, the lifting of the weight, and it's been incredible. But here's the thing. I also know from personal experience and from the truth of God's word, he doesn't always do that. In fact, he regularly doesn't. And one of the ways to build confident hope in anything, but particularly in God, is to bring your sorrow to him and trust him with it, whether he chooses to deliver you right now or not. Which means... Along with bringing God your sorrow, you also need to submit your will and your timetable to him as well, along with your sorrow. We don't, we don't put a, a clock on it that says, okay, I'm bringing it to you, but it needs to be fixed by 5 o'clock today. We just submit it to him and say, your will be done. And there's no question, yeah, yeah, the first few times when you're learning to do this, it feels really scary. It's way more scary than the hundredth time or the thousandth time you do this. But the more you do this, the more you bring, you bring the places of hurt, of sorrow, of despair to God, the more I hope God can be trusted will become put your hope in God. I will yet praise him. that same book, Spurgeon's Sorrows, Zach S. Ryan writes this, hope demolished can become hope rebuilt if it is realistic and rooted not just in the cross and empty tomb, but also in the garden and sweat like blood. Why? Well, because as I said earlier, when we bring our sorrows to Jesus, we don't just bring them to a judge and a mediator. We also bring them to one who understands them firsthand. As the author of Hebrews so powerfully noted, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. We have one who is being tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Prophet Isaiah, Isaiah tells us he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. That's our Savior. Familiar with suffering, taking up your infirmities and carrying your sorrows. Why? Because the confident hope of the gospel for every single person here this morning is that in taking on the sin of the world upon himself, Jesus was truly rejected by his Father as he thirsted on the cross, as he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that for all time, although we might feel his absence, we might never truly experience it in reality. 
why he did that. He truly has understood what it was to be rejected by the Father so you would never have to. My prayer for you this morning, if you are suffering under a season of depression or sorrow, is the same prayer I have for myself. God, increase my thirst for you. Increase my thirst for you, you who thirsted so that I might drink from your living water and be satisfied always. Increase my thirst for you, even if you need to use sorrow and a sense of your absence to accomplish it. God, send forth your light and your truth. Let them guide me to you. And even if the path you lead me on is as dark as the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you're with me. And your light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome.